Maybe this thing isn't on. Everybody got me? How you guys doing this morning? That good. All right, it's the summer, isn't it? Um, today, we're kind of bringing to a, um, a, a brief marker. This morning's sermon marks the end of the first half of the book of Acts. But didn't we just start the book of Acts? Now we're about halfway done. Kind of thematically, this mark we're going to be finishing, we're in Acts 12 today. And it is just, I have to say, such a great passage of Scripture in this category. What, what if you don't see God at work? Like, what if, you, we talked a couple of weeks ago about encouragement comes from recognizing God's presence and His provision in your life, His activity and His presence in your life. What if, you're, what if you don't see it? In fact, I mean, what if you see the exact opposite? What if the circumstances that you've got your eyes on just are a complete eclipse of the Lord? You, 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 there's no way that God could be working in that circumstance. No way. What happens if that's what you're looking at? Answers are found where all our answers are found in God's Word. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, just slip your hand up. We got some navy blue or maybe we don't. Do we have any extra blue Bibles back there? We got one. Okay. The bidding starts at $200. Okay, so um, snuggle up to the person next to you if they need one. Um, uh, please, like, Bible is to sermon what scuba gear is to deep sea diving. You will not survive the next 45 minutes without this thing. So this, our passage today comes from Acts 12. Acts 12, give me a second to get there. I'm going to be preaching the entire chapter, but I'm just going to read to begin with at least just the first section. Acts 12, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word in expectation of what he's going to say to us and in honor of the one who actually speaks. Acts 12, 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover, key concept for the entire message, the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's pray. Almighty God, you're the one who said at the beginning, let there be light. And you, Jesus, when you came to this earth, you brought sight to the blind. So we pray that in our dark world and with our dark eyes, you would shine light and bring sight to us. Help us to recognize your hand at work where we are not aware of it. Help us to know your good purposes for all. Help us to help that to grow our faith and fuel our service and empower our community so that your word would grow and multiply. In the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So Acts 12 is a narrative, it's a story, it's coming to you in three scenes. Three scenes. One, two, and three. Scene one goes from verses one through verse five. And the title of the scene is, One King Executes an Apostle. It's the passage I just read. 
it immediately brings to mind a couple of questions. One, who is Herod? Who's Herod? Okay, Herod is sort of not a really a first name. There's a whole tribe of Herods in the New Testament, and it's kind of a title. What happens is this guy, Herod, put James to death, and he imprisoned Peter. That's this guy. His name is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the guy we're dealing with today. His grandpa was called Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy who loved power and prestige so much that when he found out another king was born in Bethlehem, he sent soldiers over there and said, kill all the infants. Okay? Agrippa's uncle is a guy named Herod Antipas, who's a guy who loved power and prestige so much that he had John the Baptist arrested and because he was afraid of what some party guests might think, he killed John the Baptist, trying to protect his prestige and his power. Herod Agrippa, today's Herod, the Herod of today's story, loves power and prestige so much that he killed James. Okay, so which James are we talking about? For some reason, the New Testament does not have enough boy names. Have you noticed this? I mean, it's like a daycare that's got like four Owens and and two Jacobs and like, what's going on? There's lots of James in the New Testament. In fact, there's going to be two in this chapter. They don't delineate them at all. So here, the James we're talking about right now is James, the brother of John, okay? So one of the first Christians, one of the 12, one of the 12 disciples, not just one of the 12, like one of the elite three, one of the like Navy SEAL disciples, Okay. Like, I'm going to uh, the transfiguration. Who should I bring with me? Oh, hey, uh, Peter, James, and John, come with me. That James, James number two. Jesus, the night he's betrayed, says, all the disciples, we're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Come with me. Pray, wait here and pray, except for uh, you three, Peter, James, and John. Come with me. I need, this is, so not just a Christian, not just a disciple, one of the top three. Herod puts him to death, kills him with a sword. Oh, and he's so enamored with people's, that with prestige, with what people think of him, when he sees that the people are like, oh, good job, you killed James. He's like, you like if they like when I kill number three, they're going to love it when I kill number one. Let's go after Peter. Peter's the main guy, right? He grabs Peter, he puts him in jail. Wow. Sort of like the other piece of information to get here is he assigns a squad of, of four squads of soldiers to um, guard Peter. That's 16 guys. Why would you need 16 guys to guard one person in a prison? Well, this isn't Peter's first arrest. And as you know, he's sort of been in and out of prison a couple different times already in this book. So he's slippery, or I don't know what's going on, but... So because the Jewish people, they arrested him in chapter 4, they arrested he and John, and they're like, you cannot talk about that name anymore. And Peter says, well, what else am I supposed to talk about? I'm going to go talk about him. Bye. He talks about him. And so they like arrest him like, we said not to talk about him, and they put him in jail. So they're in jail, and angel comes, lets them out. The angel says, go talk about him some more. It's like, all right, that's that's the only thing we know how to do right now. So they're talking about him, and then they bring him back. So he's already been arrested twice. He's gotten out of prison once already angelically. And so the Jewish leader's are like, just to let you know, if you're going to arrest Peter, you've got to be a little extra careful, okay? So, so Herod's like, how about uh, four soldiers? And they're like, how about four squads? He's like, four squads. So 16 soldiers are assigned to guard Peter. One, 
meek little Jewish fisherman guy, 16 Roman soldiers, swords, Peter, one tunic, just, hello. And like the soldiers are like, this is the guy? You know, like we've got 16 of us, it's probably, no, it's, just, it's Peter. So what is this? And then verse 5, one of the most marvelous verses in the book of Acts, it says, but the church, but earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for Peter was made to God for the church. All right, let's talk about prayer. This is one of the coolest places in Acts to talk about prayer. Because um, I think we have some, some common misconceptions that are really highlighted here for prayer. I went to a church, I was employed by a church for many years, one of my favorite churches in the world, that said one of their main tenets was, we believe firmly in the power of prayer. And I think I understand what they meant. But we don't believe that prayer has power, do we? I mean, Islam prays, uh, Buddhism prays, uh, Hinduism prays, um, Shinto prays. I made a list off of the great website Wikipedia. Where are you, little guy? Um, um, the Taoism prays. Christian science prays. I asked my dad, I said, I was like seventh grade. I'm like, what's Christian science? He says, well, it's like grape nuts. I'm like, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, are there any grapes in grape nuts? I'm like, no. Are there any nuts in grape nuts? No. He's like, that's Christian science. <laughs> okay? Listen, the power is not in prayer. The power is not in us, what we're saying. The power is in the one to whom we pray. So please, just put that as a, as a paradigm into your mind. And I know we all believe that in theory, but in practice, sometimes we treat it like, no, really, there's like special things that we need to say. There's special like magic. I guess there was some movie that might have come out recently that was sort of about magic. It's not like that, okay? What does Jerusalem have to do with Hogwarts? Nothing. Listen. So it's not like specific words you're supposed to pray. God is not a vending machine that requires exact change. Sometimes we, we pray and we don't get it. and We think, well, if I had just prayed a little bit more, or here's what, maybe that prayer needed 10 morning prayers and three hour-long prayers to get answered. No, not so. Or we think maybe instead of just special types of prayers, maybe we need special people to pray with us. If I, had 20, if I could get 25 people to all pray for this, then God would have to answer what I'm saying. Oh, maybe if I got a pastor to pray with me, if I could get Billy Graham to pray with me, that's what I need right now. You're laughing right now, but are there not some people who believe what they need to do is get deceased saints to pray for them? Am I right? If what I need is that if I could get Mary, the mother of Jesus, to pray for me, then that would answer this, then God would have to listen to her. No, no, no. Here's what it is. God, there's a little bit of a booming in my mic. I'm going to try to ignore it. God is a completely free being. God does what he wants to do. God is not bound to us by any sense of our words control him. It's not magic. It's not like that. He's a person. And he invites us to have a relationship with him. He invites us to ask things of him. 
Prayer itself depends on God. That's why this great phrase that we say in our prayers, in Jesus' name, at the end of our prayers, we say in Jesus' name. Although for some reason we've started to maybe slip away from that. We'll say like, oh, um, God, please be with us today. Amen. We just kind of skip the in Jesus' name part. But let's not skip the in Jesus' name part. Because why? Because the fact that we have a relationship with God at all is because of Jesus. We don't have a relationship with God except for the finished work of Jesus Christ and our union with him. Jesus Christ enables our relationship with God. He enables our communication with God. He's not done. He's not done. He's not like the ticket that got you into the U2 concert that you throw away once you get to the concert with the Father. No, still with you. Amazingly, he intercedes for us. He's at the right hand of God mediating on our behalf. I love the songs that Greg and Will pick out for our services. When we sing praise to the Father, we don't do it on our own. We don't do it because of the merits of the things that we've accomplished or because we're particular. There are some songs that, we, that churches sing, not our church, that seem to imply the reason why God listens to our praises is because we're the ones praising Him. Incorrect. Incorrect. Gloriously true. God hears our praises because of the work of Christ and because of the, of the Spirit. Hmm. Listen to this. This is Romans 8.26. It says, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses because we don't know what to pray for like we should. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So our prayers are enabled by the Son. Our prayers are... are, <laughs> are he intercedes with us. The Spirit intercedes for us himself. So listen, let's be careful in our prayers, not just to come flippantly. But the other side of that is, let's make sure in our prayers to come boldly, we have an invitation to come to the Father. Let me just speak. This next two minutes might be just for me, but hopefully there's other people who are like me or I'm very alone in this world. Sometimes when I pray, I reduce my prayers down to the stuff that I'm sure God's going to answer. I just like, well, I can't really pray that because I'm not sure he would answer that, and I can't pray that. And so I end up with this like theological tightrope of prayer that's like, okay, God, um, God, thank you that the sun came up today. Check. I pray that you would be with me. Check. I pray that somehow in some nebulous way that no one can really measure that you would do your thing, whatever that is today. Like vanilla, weak prayers. Why? And can I just say, I'm especially guilty of this when I'm praying with other people. Why? Because it would be embarrassing to ask God for something that he, did, that he doesn't give you. Okay? Let me just free us from that. We can ask God for stuff that he'll say no to. That's okay. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, let this cup pass from me. And the Father said, no. It's okay if he says no to your prayer. It is. You can pray for something. The Father invites you, permits you, throws his arms wide open to you and says, ask, ask me. I love it when you ask me for stuff. Let's not let our fear of what other people will think of our walk with God dictate what we will ask him of. James 4 says, you have not because you ask not. 
So let's not be so afraid of looking bad in front of other Christians that we don't receive the good things God would give to us if we ask. Does that make sense? So all of that to say on, on prayer. And the, the last thing, God answers prayer. God flat out, gloriously, lavishly, magnificently answers prayer. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, he didn't, you know, he, yes for Peter, but no for James, right? Okay, um, what's it called? It's a spoiler alert, right? Peter's going to get out of prison in a minute. Is that all right? Did I ruin the story for anybody? Peter's getting out. Everybody with me so far? That, that didn't ruin the Bible for anybody. Okay, Peter's getting out. The people pray for Peter, and he gets out. Now, how many people think, interpretation by voting, how many people think the church prayed for James? Did the church pray for James, the apostle? Yes, they, they, of course they prayed for James. They don't love Peter more. or it's, They prayed for James. So did God answer the prayers of the church for James? Yes. I mean, just like, let's just think about it here. What would we have, let's pretend, we're the group of people gathered to pray for the Apostle James, as you guys know. Herod, he has arrested James. He's threatening to kill him. We need to pray. Special prayer meeting this morning. We're going to pray for the Apostle James. We gather together, and there's a prayer pit, and we're praying. What are the things that we pray for? We say, one, God, be, be with James in this crisis. Was God, did God answer that prayer? Was God with James during the crisis? Yes? Check. Okay? Two, Get him out of jail. We, I would have, you know, somebody would have prayed, Lord, just get him out of that prison. Did God answer the prayer, get James out of prison? Yes. Yes, he did. Third prayer, deliver him from Herod's hand. Was James delivered by Herod's, from Herod's hand? Yes. Fourth prayer, this is the one I would have said, don't let anything bad happen to him. Right? listen, God doesn't mind when we ask him for stuff. He's our heavenly father. Do you mind when your kids ask you for stuff? I love it when my kids say, you know, (laughs) my son wanted to write a letter to George Lucas for something. I was like, we're not doing that, pal, but I like the way you think. I think. It's fine. I love it when my kids ask me stuff. It's the same thing with God. So God says, don't let anything bad happen. Don't let anything bad happen to him, God. God says, okay, your definition of bad or mine? So God answers the prayer, don't let anything bad happen to him, but he answers it in his way, with his definitions all around it. He answers it in a higher way, in a better way. That's why we need the Spirit to intercede for us. Because remember, Jesus told James what was going to go down. James, John, their mom grabs them. Come on, you're coming with me. Let's go. Jesus, um, Simple request, I'm a simple lady. This kid sits on your right hand, this kid sits on your left. How about it? Like, all we're looking for is chairs. And remember this? And Jesus says to them, can you drink the same cup that I'm going to drink? And the brothers are like, well, mom's right here. Yeah, I think we can do that. Jesus said to James, you certainly, you surely will drink the cup that I will drink. Jesus promised him this. This isn't some strange thing happening to James that was an oops for God, like, somebody fire his guardian angel. What happened down there? Not true. Not so. So here's how God answers the prayer. He either flat out answers the prayer, he changes the prayer to make it better, and then he answers it, 
or he will answer the prayer in the future. Listen to this verse. This verse is the verse that rocked me this week. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. It says, Do not pronounce judgment before the time. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You're trying to gauge right or wrong before all the evidence is in God. You're trying to gauge things before the time. God's got a time where you will look at it and you will say, James killed in prison, gloriously resurrected. Like, you will look at, you will see James and you'll be like, and he'll be like, that was a great plan. Your prayers for me were completely answered. That was amazing. I was delivered right there. Sword goes through my neck. I'm like, what's this going to be like? And he was there. Amazing. That's the end of scene one. Scene one, the title was, One King Executes an Apostle. Scene two, verses six is where it starts. Scene two is, One King Frees an Apostle. Scene two, One King Frees an Apostle. Let's plow ahead a bit here. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, okay, on the, not the week of, not three days before, the night it's going to go down that night. Anybody ever needed the Lord, like, in the midnight hour he shows up? I, mean, I, I love the praise choruses we sing here, but there's a gospel song that just nails this thing. It says, you can't hurry, my God, you just gotta wait. Trust him and give him time, no matter how long it takes. He's a God, you can't hurry. He'll be there, don't you worry. He may not come when we want him, but he's right on time. Great truth. On that night, Peter was, what's he doing? What's he doing, church? He's he's sleeping, okay? (laughs) So the verse says, Herod was about to bring him out. About to bring him out. Has Herod, like, you know, Given the order, the executioner guy is like in the sword sharpening room, getting that thing all like sizzled up. Like, you know, we don't want to have to do this twice. Let's just get this thing sharp and like, here we go. And the guards like, like it's, it's go time, right? This is it, crunch time. And Peter's like, you're like, Peter, why are you asleep? Peter's like, well, if I'm going to meet Jesus in the morning, I don't want to be like, I want to be well rested when that happens. Look at the faith of Peter. My friend Susan Elliott brought this to my attention. Remember, Peter was the one who said, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Peter's not just, that's just not some abstract message for Peter. Cast those cares on him. He's like Jesus. Remember in, um, in the story, is it, is it, yeah, it's in Luke 8. Jesus is on the boat. There's a huge storm going on. Whoa, the disciples are like, we're going to die. And Jesus, <laughs> And they're like, don't you even care? And Jesus is like, oh, all right, knock it off. Are you guys okay? Do I need to hold your hand, you of little faith? So Peter's like, oh, there's a storm going on around me. I'm in prison right now. I know what to do. Oh, man. So just imagine, (laughs) just imagine where he's at right now. He's between two soldiers bound with two chains, okay? So Herod's like, listen, guys. 16 of you are standing here. Listen, we got a prisoner, a very, very important prisoner. I got all 16 of you guys to guard one. They're like, no problem. We got it. Like, okay, here's the deal. He's going to be in the cell. They're like, no problem. We'll, we'll stand right outside his cell. He's like, not good enough. I want you guys in the cell. They're like, all right. 
we'll put some guys in the cell. He's like, I want you sitting next to Peter. I want you guys on the same bench as Peter. I want you to like, all right, Herod, you're, you're the king. We'll sit next to Peter. We'll, we'll, we'll be fine. He's like, I want you guys to get like handcuffs. And I want you to like handcuff yourself to him. They're like, okay, well, I guess we are officially beyond the realm of normality here. Handcuffed to Peter. So what's Peter? Like, like church, what's he doing? <sighs> he's like drooling on this guy. He's flailing over to here. Oh. The soldiers are working four at a time, and they cover three-hour shifts. That's how the, that's how the squadrons work. They're, it's a group of four, two of them chained to Peter, two of them right outside the door, four of them. And every three hours, new group comes in. So your job, could you do this job? employment is low in Michigan. Could you do this job? Work for three hours, nine off. Pretty good? Three hours on, sitting, handcuffed to a guy. Your buddies, very strong buddies out there, also in charge. You're like, all right, no problem. It's a paycheck. No problem. Could you do this job? Oh, amazing. Verse 7, behold, and he says, suddenly, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in their cell. This is the first time we see an angel in our chapter, not the last. Look at this next part. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. Okay, so how does Luke know this story? How does Luke know this story? He obviously has talked to Peter, right? So, you know, Peter's asleep for this, so maybe he doesn't even know that the angel at first was probably like, hey, Peter, 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 and then, boom! <laughs> it's the same word in Greek as the word that is used when Peter cuts the guy's ear off. That's how hard he hit Peter. Like, what is going? <laughs> Wakes him up. He strikes Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fall off of Peter's hands, and the angel says to him, Dress yourself, dress yourself. We gotta go. Oh, put, put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And the angel said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I mean, this sounds like a mom trying to get a preschooler into a snowsuit, doesn't it? Like, I've got, you know, my, I've got three boys at home, nine, almost seven, and four, and my wife getting them out the door is like, where's your shoes? Where are your shoes? You got shoes. Where are they? Backpacks. Backpack, everybody. Backpack. Where's your homework folder? Where is your homework folder? We got you a Bakugan folder so you wouldn't lose it. Where's it? So this is how the angel's talking to Peter, like, get your shoes, get your cloak, get, come on, shoes. I said shoes. What's Peter's problem? Look. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. This is what Peter was like. So, boom, on the side of the head, he's like, wow, this is crazy. I've had a couple of these already. Um, I think my cloak is clean, not unclean. Am I right? Is that what this is about again? Okay, no. um, Get your shoes on. He's like, I wonder what that means. Get my shoes on. These usually come in groups of three. Maybe I'll figure it out the next two times it comes around. So here, he thinks he's seeing a vision, which, by the way, kind of, it's a little clue. It's not really explicit in the text, but that's a clue about what visions are like. It's like real life. You just sort of, right? It's not like some, like, 
harp playing in the background to let you know it's a vision. It's just happening, right? When, when they had passed, okay, let's, let's keep going here. Um, when they had passed the first and the second guard, see how Luke is pulling you into the story? They've passed the first guard, then the second guard. They came to the iron gate leading into the city. Oh no, it's a gate! And it opened for them all by itself. And they went out and went along one street. So they walked a block, and immediately the angel left him. (laughs) And Peter's like, oh, I get it. When Peter finally came to himself, which, by the way, is the exact same phrase that Luke uses for the prodigal son who comes to himself. Whoa, where am I? He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The Lord did it. And if you thought that was funny, look at this next section. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the brother of John. Okay, so apparently house churches are not something that got invented last year. Mary, the mother of John, John whose other name was Mark. Okay, so... Have you noticed this? Like, the New Testament needs some more boy names. Like, it's, we're in a little bit of a mess right now. Here it is. Here's Mary. Oh, no, no, but not that Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of John. No, not that John. This is John, whose other name is Mark. Sorry, it's a little, it's a little crazy. Just, just deal with it. But you'll see, John Mark is going to be a huge character in the rest of this book. Colossians 4.20 tells us that John Mark and Barnabas are cousins. Okay? So in this house where many were gathered together and were praying. They're not praying by themselves, they're gathered together. And he knocked at the door of the outer gateway. And a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. You know, so just like, how's that? Okay. Who is it? Like, it's, it's Peter. It's Peter. Okay, well, a little thing to notice here. The house was big enough that many people could be in there. It's big enough that it has an outer gate and it's big enough that it has a servant girl. It's a big house. Although maybe Rhoda, it doesn't say, um, it doesn't say that that's Mary's servant. So it could be she's just a servant girl from a different household. But you'll see in a minute, she doesn't act like the sort of master-slave thing that we think of when we think of masters and slaves. Like Rhoda is like a part of the community. You're going to see it in a second here. So slave, master, freed person, all the same in the gospel kingdom, all together for the gospel. A serving game girl named Rhoda came to answer. Rhoda, it might not be her real name. It might be a nickname. It means like little rosebud. That's what it means. So it might be like a cute little nickname for her. <laughs> Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran back in and reported that Peter's standing at the gate. Who is it? It's, it's Peter. Guys, it's Peter. Peter! And they're like, listen, stop interrupting us. We're praying. Look at the, look, what do they say to her? You have lost your mind, they say to her. You have lost your mind. If Peter was out, Rhoda, we wouldn't be praying. Look at this. So, strong faith from the church or weak faith from the church? Weak faith. Like, here's the answer to your prayer. God, let him out. Ding dong, I'm here. And they're like, no, 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 listen. Like, really let him out. It's me, it's Peter. Like, no, 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 no. 
He's in jail. Like, strong faith, weak faith. Weak faith. I mean, nice faith that they're praying about it, but God did not answer the prayers of this church because of their overwhelming faith. I mean, they just blew it when the answer walks up and knocks on their door. So look at poor Rhoda. She insists that it's him. She insists that it's him, and they say to her, okay, she's insisting so much, they're like, okay. Oh, it must be his angel, it says. must be his angel. Well, maybe first things first. I don't care, angel or apostle. I'm still going to go open the door. Are you with me? If there's an angel at the door, I'm going to go see, right? <laughs> so I'm not sure why that... But, so what did they think was really happening? They thought he, Peter had... He died, right? So sad. So what's... <laughs> verse 16... But Peter continued knocking, right? So they're all having this conversation about it, and he's like, well, hey guys, um, there's a dog barking. It's kind of scary out here. Because where did Peter just come from? Need a little reminder already? Where did he just come from? Jail. So I don't know if you've seen any cop shows, but when, like, people escape from jail, they're not trying to be, they're not, like, skip my, to my loo, my darling, on their way around. They're, he's like, hello, anybody? What? Like a lamp goes on, he thinks maybe that's guards. There's a dog that barks. That might be a search team. He's like, somebody open this door. So they finally opened the door. When they opened it, they saw him and were amazed. Okay, the Greek word literally there means they stood beside themselves. It was like an out-of-body experience to see Peter. And they said, it's Peter! Peter! Because look at the verse. 17, but motioning, them, motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Try not to yell the fact that I'm here. <sighs> you guys are not very good at this, okay? People are hunting for me, swords, sharp, 16, very fast, athletic. Um, don't yell my name right now. He's motioning them with his hand to be quiet. And then it says... He described to them how the Lord brought me out of prison, which the wording here is almost identical with the wording in Exodus 18.4, where Moses talks about Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh. And he said, Peter said, tell these things to James. So not the James that was killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus, James. And to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. He went to, where, where did he go to? Another place. What? That's like one of the most cryptic things in the entire New Testament. So, like, we've tracked Peter all the way through here. He was here, then he was here, then he was here, and now he's gone to another place, and he, like, disappears for the rest of the book. Huh. Well, that's strange. Unless it's true. Unless he really is a guy who escaped from a Roman prison. Church history tells us that Peter went to the city of Rome, and we know that the, gospel, the um, story of Acts ends in the Gospel of Rome, so it seems like Luke went to Rome with the story, and he's publishing it and making copies and passing it out. He doesn't want to tell everybody, by the way, Peter, he's here in the city. So Luke is taking care of his friend Peter by like, oh, he went to someplace else. He's going to be a little better than the people who are yelling, Peter's here. He's like, guys, he went to another place. Same thing's going to happen. Remember, John Mark is going to be a close friend with Peter. He's also going to end up in Rome. 
You're going to watch when John Mark exits. The exact same thing. He departed from there. It's hard to say, really, where that ended up at. In Rome. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become to Peter. That's one of Luke's favorite things. He loves to say there was no little time, it was no small dissension, no, not a few, not a little disturbance, no little business, no small storm. That's the way Luke loves to talk. But you can imagine, like, oh man, weird. Okay, well, at least he's, uh, um, problem, we have a problem, but for the two guys, hey guys, where did, where did Peter go? And they're at the door and they're like, um, he's chained to you guys, where's your handcuffs? Where's, oh, he's not here. Problem. So they go, <laughs> look at this, 19, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him. So the, it had to happen, the soldiers, I'm Herod, bad news, good news. Good news, um, we did your whole plan with the handcuffs and sitting beside him. Really great idea. I want to give you props for that one. That was yours. I never would have thought of that. You're right on that one. Bad news is um, we lost him. We, we lost him. And, I mean, if Herod's like my wife, when I lose stuff, he says, well, where's the place you saw him last? Look, at they, they do a search for him. Like, well, guys, he's got to be in there somewhere. So they search. It says Herod searched for him. Did he send somebody? Did he, like, get off the throne? He's like, I'm going to go find myself. Where is this guy? Where is he? He walked through the prison looking for Peter. He can't be gone. Sixteen guys. Come on. He's gone. He examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. That seems a little strange to us, but Acts 16, 17, when the people escaped from the jail in uh, Philippi, the the jailer was going to kill himself it's because his prisoners had escaped. It says in Acts 27, the guards were going to kill the prisoners during that storm. The point is, if, one of, if the prisoner you're in charge of escapes, the guard receives the punishment that the prisoner was going to get. Wow. Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. If you, you can check your map in the back. Caesarea is basically his, his lakefront property. He's got, a, he's got a cottage. He's got to get some space. This place is wigging him out. He's got to get away. He goes to Caesarea. Scene one, one king executes an apostle. Scene two, one king frees an apostle. Parentheses, what's the score right now? What's the score? I mean, it would be really tempting to say, well, Herod got one. He killed James. One point for Herod. One point for God for freeing Peter. It's a tie game. Now we're going to go to the deciding point right here next. Not true. Not true. If you think that we're in a tie game right now, then you're playing a different game than God. Just imagine, for example, a cricket player somehow stumbles into a Tigers game, okay? And he's got a crazy-looking bat, and his clothes don't even match, and people are like, what's going on? He walks up, and somehow a pitch comes, and he kind of like it and it goes like back to the right and the umpire yells foul ball but the cricket guy runs to first base as fast as he can and then he runs and the people laugh like <laughs> look at him go it's a foul ball and then he runs back to home plate and then he runs again to first base people are like, what is going on and back and then a third time to first base and a third time home and he announces to everybody that he just scored three runs now the tigers could use three runs 
But listen, what would be comical at a Tigers game or at a uh, church softball game? <laughs> Just throwing that one out there for anybody who saw our British friend play softball this year. Um, would be disastrous in real life. Would be disastrous in real life. God has determined the rules of how life works. And people who are pursuing life on their own terms and playing by their own rules think that they are scoring runs like a cricket player who thinks he's scoring runs at a baseball game, but they are not. God was working in James's situation. God was working in Peter's situation. Both. God won both of those things. It would help, it would help us, maybe this will help. God's miracles are not his special power. So it's not like God used special power to get Peter out and just was like normal in charge of James's situation. Not so. God has only one type of power. God doesn't have special power for special holidays. He has divine power. All of God's power is divine power. So when he performs a miracle, it's not an example of his special power, but it's a special example of his divine power. That might be too complicated for me. Might be too complicated for you, but God, it's a tie. It's not a tie game. God is up 2-0, and now it's scene three. The real king is revealed, verse 20. Scene one, one king executes an apostle. Scene two, one king frees an apostle. Scene three, the real king is revealed, verse 20. Now Herod was angry. Doesn't seem that uncommon now, does it? He was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, two cities, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Okay, so the chamberlain is the guy who's in charge of the king's, like, quarters, his personal stuff. That's what the chamberlain is in charge of. But they usually had, like, other jobs as well. It seems like Herod had banned grain exports from Judea to Tyre and Sidon. So Judea was like Iowa to Tyre and Sidon's California. This is where the food was made. Tyre and Sidon needed it. And it seemed like the king of Judea, Herod, had shut it down, put an embargo on, we're not giving you any food. And those towns were now desperate. So they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robe. So here's their whole plan. Listen, Herod, you're angry with us. But what you don't know is that we're throwing a little festival in your honor. We're calling it Herod Palooza. It's like a three-day festival, spectacles, and um, some bands. going to be some great bands. You're going to love it. And kind of on day three, kind of the pinnacle of the whole thing, we thought you might want to come and just honor us. Bless us with just a speech. We just feel like it would be so good to hear your voice. Like they're just buttering him up because they, they need food. That's what's happening here. So, on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. What is the contents of that speech? I am magnificent. I am King Herod. I'm not sure. And the people trying to lay it on thick. We've already, you know, we're doing this multi-day festival in honor of the guy. Like, don't blow it now. We gotta go for the checkmate here. So they start chanting. Look what they chant. 
It's the voice of a God and not a man. It's the voice of a God and not a man. They're just getting the people to chant. It's the voice of a God and not a man. Now, when Cornelius sees Peter and falls down at his feet and worships him, Peter's like, get up. What are you doing? Knock it off. When John sees the angel at the end of Revelation and he falls down at the angel's feet to worship the angel because the angel is so magnificent. The the angel's like, I am a fellow servant with you. Get up. This is not an instinct that Herod has. Herod says, you know what? You're probably right. It is a great speech. I am awesome. He's soaking into it. And look what the Lord does. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. This is reference to the angel of death that you see in Exodus 12 that kills all those Egyptians. 2 Samuel 24, he kills a lot of Israelites. And 2 Kings 19, he kills a lot of Assyrians. Death is in the hands of God, not in the hands of Satan. The Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, if you're a little kid like you, not looking at me, but I'm sure you will in a second. Oh, yeah, there it is. If you heard a story about a guy being eaten by worms, you would say, that's, that's so cool slash gross, right? Not so Jewish, little Jewish boys and girls. A story of getting eaten by worms was like, I know what that is. That's Isaiah 51, 7 and 8. Like, feel free, like, right in your Bibles, right above that, eaten by worms, you can write Isaiah, I-S period, 5, 1, Seven through eight. If you've got one of the church's Bibles, go ahead and write in there. There was only one. I guess we're running out. (laughs) Listen to this, Isaiah 51. You won't believe this. The Jewish people heard, eaten by worms, and they went, I know what that is. This is what they were thinking. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Do not be afraid of the reproach of man, nor dismayed at their revilings. Why? For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. So here's a little, like, tip. Like, Luke loves to do this. He gives you, like, a little phrase, tick, and you're like, oh, that's this other thing. And he pulls you in, and this is proof that God's righteousness will be forever, and his salvation will not be stopped by an arrogant king. It will be to all generations. Verse 24 puts an exclamation point on that. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God's mission is moving ahead. His sovereign purposes are being accomplished. And that brings us to our last section. The implications of this. Stunning. We talked at the very beginning. What about where you don't see God at work? What about this circumstance? I'm looking at it. And I've alluded to it a couple times, but James just died. We pray that he wouldn't die. He's dead. What happened? Where is God? The way to find God's activity is to recognize what God's purposes are. What is God's purpose? What are our lives supposed to be about? God created us with a job to do. This is Genesis 1.28. He said, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every little thing that moves on the earth. It's called the cultural mandate. It was our job. Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. 
But we blew it. Instead of spreading out and filling the earth, we decided to grab power for ourselves, like Herod, power and prestige. And we decided to centralize our power and start building a Tower of Babel as a testament to our achievement and our greatness. We decided to play Herod. But this has always been the job of of God's people. It's like, it's in some very famous opening lines. Like if you're a kid and you hear the phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. As a kid, you're like, I know where this is going. Pretty soon there's music. It's going to be awesome. You just know, you're pulled into the story. I know what he's talking about. But listen, this is Exodus 1-7. Here's the opening lines in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, if the book of Exodus isn't written all by itself. He's echoing what, God's, what people were supposed to be about. Here's, a, here's Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Here's Exodus. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now listen. That little phrase, that little beginning, here's Genesis, here's your job when you were created, here's the job that we pulled you out of Egypt to do, was the same thing. Here it is in Acts 12.25. What's the word of God? The word of God increased and multiplied. In the Greek, it's the exact same words that are used there. Here, he's like, listen, this is what it's about. And you see this phrase all throughout the book of Acts Acts 12.25 rhymes with these words. Luke's point is this. God is rolling out his Exodus sequel. His people, blood-bought by the sacrifice of a perfect lamb on Passover. Sound familiar? Are being led. But this time, instead of like a huge pillar of fire that leads all the people to one place, now, the Spirit comes in tongues of fire on each individual. And the Spirit, who John 3 says, blows wherever he wants, wherever he wishes, takes individual believers wherever he wishes to all different places. It's a new exodus. And Pharaoh, the king that would not listen to God's voice, he says in Exodus 5, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And God said, Who is the Lord? This is who I am. Boom, judgment on Egypt, destruction of Pharaoh. Now Herod says, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice? By the way, do you know who has a God-like voice? Me. I will be God in this situation, judged. I will tear down God's church, judged and killed by God. God has a sovereign plan, but... Isn't that cold? I mean, didn't James have some hopes and dreams that never got accomplished? Didn't Stephen want to see his grandkids? Isn't God's great plan a little unfair to some of these individuals? No, not really. No, not really. I'm positive that if we were to meet, and we will talk, you'll be able to talk with James on the new earth when we are all resurrected and together. We'll talk to Stephen, and he will be thrilled with, he will be thrilled with God's provision for him. But here's the deal. Open your eyes. Get a larger view of God's purposes. 
It's a great, magnificent kingdom. Get pulled out of the middle of, of the story. God does not form a part of your portfolio. He's not providing a, a function for you, for you to live your life as if you are the sun in the middle of a solar system and the Bible orbits around you. Not so. Not so. We, we treat it that way. Sometimes we'll be like, God, you know, as you know, I'm, um, I'm trying to figure out what, to, what job to take here in the next little bit, and so um, it would be really great if today's scripture reading would really fulfill that purpose for me. So just please pull your enormous eternal self into my little temporal world. Um, nope, that doesn't have anything to do with the job that I'm looking for. We get so disappointed with God because he won't pull into our world. Meanwhile, what we need to do is recognize we're the planets. He's the sun. We do not, he does not orbit us. We orbit him. What a great reminder we had of that this morning with the, the, the mom and the two high school daughters standing right here going to Guatemala. Like, do you know one of the purposes of our church it drives me a little bit nuts when I hear, I think I know what they mean, but on Christian radio, sometimes they're like, hey, listen, Christian radio, it's, it's safe for the whole family. Okay, I think I get where that's at. I still listen. But Christianity has never advertised itself as safe before. Like, that's not really us. Christianity is safe. Like, we're not trying to create a temporally safe sort of, like, we're not putting up walls and, and creating protection for ourselves in Christianity. No, no, no. We're sending a mom and two high school girls to Guatemala. Well, how, how's the drinking water in Guatemala? Well, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not as safe. As, well, is there 911 there? What about housing prices? Are you going to be able to, I mean, if you were to move there, I mean, what are you going to do if one of those girls just gets a heart for the people of, the Guatem- of Guatemala and just is like, Mom, I got to do this? Like, what's that? You should know, as a church, one of the things that we're trying to do, we keep your kids safe. One of the things we're trying to do is blow their hearts up into this eternally um, visible to see this kingdom of God at work. And when, when we do a prayer pit in here, I want him, age 11, and I want him, age uh, 13, and I want... I want the kids in our church to say, like, I wonder when it's going to be my turn for the prayer pit. I wonder what great, important, noble task God is going to give me for his kingdom. That's what we want. We are not trying to turn out a bunch of careful, copycat, cookie-cutter Christian kids. We are looking for kingdom champions that love God's word and know it. And not just know about it, but are like driven by it. And as soon as you start talking to them, they just get really excited about this. Let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like, wait a minute. I heard that country is really hard to be a Christian there. That sounds like a place I'd like to go. That's the type of kids we're trying to raise in our church. That's the type of people we're trying to shape ourselves into by hearing these things. God is not going to orbit around us. We need to get pulled into his story. We need to be eccentric, not crazy. Some of you are already that. (laughs) But listen, eccentric, ec, out, centered, out of the middle. Get yourself out of the middle. Pull yourself into, let yourself be pulled into the gravity, the enormity of God's 
of, of his purposes and his plans and his story. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, I long to learn this lesson for myself. I long to recognize your hand at work in all things and to submit myself to that. God, I believe that you are at work even when we're not seeing it. Like Rod preached to us about Jacob, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Help us, God, to have faith to believe that. Your word tells us in Hosea 6 that you're going forth is as certain as the dawn and that you will come to us like the spring rains, like the rains that water the earth. Give us faith to believe that. Fill us with that expectation to find you in places and to be found by you, loving you and serving you with our whole hearts, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.